Welcome to episode 113. Today, Tina Bean joins us to talk about teaching multilinguals and social studies. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Social studies, like content classes can pose many challenges to learning. Imagine if I was to teach you about the Korean War using Spanish. Some of you would feel quite prepared while others of you would feel very petrified. <laughs> like me, I'm familiar with Spanish, but my academic Spanish is not the level where I can access rich content about the Korean War. I would need a lot of support and a lot of encouragement and this is exactly what Tina Bean talks about. She's a former teacher, now a consultant and author of two books about teaching multilinguals and content classes. In this fast-paced, highly engaging episode, we will be discussing all the ways we can make social studies and really all content instruction engaging and scaffolded for multilingual students. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so excited to have another expert from Silence. And it's not just my love for Silence, but it's just for the love that, that comes out of the authors that work for Silence. And today we have consultant and teacher Tina Bean. Welcome to the podcast, Tina. I'm so glad to finally be here. Oh, it's been a long time waiting in coming. So let's start with, tell us a story that has shaped your practice today. Okay, perfect. Um, well, how about I tell a really embarrassing one to start with um, of just my general lack of cultural relevancy and knowledge. All right, just start right off with that. Um, so y'all will be able to tell pretty quick from my accent and the fact that I just said y'all already uh, that I am from a very rural part of Texas and I grew up in a very homogenous environment. Everybody looked like me, sounded like me. And I mean, literally looked like me because we all share genetic material. And um, one of the ways that that has impacted me as an educator is um, I became a, a bilingual elementary teacher. So I taught bilingual fifth and third grade in the Dallas area in Texas. And so when I was teaching, I had the academic language to be successful. Um, I was receiving really good support and training to learn how to become a teacher, even though I was already teaching. Uh, it was an emergency certification program. And so I was getting support at the like in the intellectual realm. Um, but just my lack of cultural knowledge was just constantly hitting me in the face. Um, and one of the ways that always sticks out to me that I will never forget is telling my group of fifth graders, uh, my whole class of like 30 fifth graders um, in my you know bilingual classroom to all go find a partner who had different colored eyes than them. And they were like, that's you, miss. Like, look around. 
Like read the room. What are you thinking? And it's just like, that was constantly happening. So what really shaped my teaching was just learning humility and just being like, oh yeah, I, I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't know idioms. I don't know figurative language in, in Spanish. I don't know cultural references. I don't know pop culture. I don't know pop culture in English either. Uh, so because of the way I grew up, but I think what really shaped my teaching practice was just that constant butting up against the ignorance and doing things like go find a partner who has different colored eyes when almost everybody in my room had brown eyes. I had one kid that year who was a brand new newcomer and I'd love to tell this story and I wonder where he is now. His name was Jaime and he had just moved from Mexico City and he was really uh, starting to catch on a little bit with what was going on with classroom norms and stuff and practices. And he was always really watching everybody else like you do when you're first starting out and trying to get acclimated to your new surroundings in any situation. And I said, go find a partner at different colored eyes. And he had these bright blue eyes and he was the only kid who had blue eyes. And I should have thought of that. And my girls were all going nuts for him, you know? And so when I said, go find a partner as different colored eyes, they all went, and he was like, ah, um, so yeah, that's, that's when I uh, realized it was, there was a lot more to teaching than what was in the first hundred days book that I had read. But what a great story, because you really showed us that, Hey, when a person consistently learns and reflects on their experience, it helps you, it helps make you a better teacher. Yeah. And it really helped my kids too, that like, I was constantly making mistakes and, you know, with Spanish being my second language, I was making mistakes, you know, in instruction and they would have to tell me like, no, it, you know, it's like this or whatever. Um, and so by putting myself on the level of a learner that really changed the dynamic in my room and made it really, you know, pretty okay to make mistakes. Um, it was always just really a big deal for me that kids not be able to make fun of each other when they make mistakes. Like that would make my head spin around, you know, I just could not because, you can't learn when you don't feel safe and you don't feel safe. If you think you're going to get made fun of, like as a, as an adolescent, as a child, you are terrified of being mocked by your peers. And so we made sure that like in our classroom, that was a big deal for me and my kids is you can't make fun of people when they make mistakes, including me, because I can't take it very well. So when I make a mistake, uh, you can laugh a little bit at it because it's funny, especially when it's a second language error, like second language errors are funny a lot of the time you know, and it's okay to like laugh at that and move on, but not in a way that's mean spirited. And that is something else um, speaking. And I don't want to be too specific to working with bilingual learners uh, who with a Spanish background. So I'll just say a little bit more about this and then we can broaden up the conversation because I don't want to stay too narrow. But one of the things that um, really was a struggle for me is my kids were used to a lot of um, picking on each other and making fun of each other and nicknames that are physical about something physically wrong with you. And that's super, super common, right? That's very common, but I'm not used to that. And so for me in my classroom, I couldn't be comfortable with it. So we had to have the expectation that like I had one boy one year who had a birthmark on his face that was a huge birthmark on his face. And um, his nickname was El Mapa, like the map. El Mapa. Yes, that's what his, and that nickname had been given to him by a previous teacher. Let me just no. Yes. And so we had the teacher and I ended up having like words about it. And I really understood what he was saying. He's like, 
he's going to get picked on for this. And so, and this is a, you know, more of a male thing, even the, and a cultural thing as well. It's all wrapped up together. Um, but he was like, you know, he's going to, he's going to deal with this his whole life. We've got to like toughen him up about it. We've got to make him not sensitive about it. And I was like, yeah, but he also is in fifth grade and really isn't reading yet. So I need to worry a little bit more about a few other things. And I'm, he's not going to be called that in my room. He's going to be Eric. Like what, I can't stop what you do when you see him in the hallway, but just don't do it in front of me. And my kids aren't going to be able to do it either because Eric is, he's suffering like, you know, and, and at the same time, I get where you're coming from, but it's the classroom. It's a little bit different. So um, that, that was really important for me to, and just to be aware of it and just to be aware that we may have different opinions about it. It doesn't mean that one of us is right. We both have points, you know, here and and he does need to toughen up for sure. He does need to not be sensitive about his face, but we also need to be, I don't know. So anyway, uh, all of that to say, I had a lot of, of hard conversations and conversations where I felt ignorant a lot and that's not a comfortable feeling it's not a place that I like to be uh, but it really impacted my teaching and honestly led to the book itself too uh, was just coming from a place of humility and like here's some strategies that worked for me when I didn't know what I was doing (laughs) well can you tell us more about that I I always have a question when I interview authors I always ask them what was the seed of your book can you tell us okay, so that? yeah, this book started um, over breakfast with my boss, John Seidlitz, when I was first coming on to the team. And he sent me, we went to a diner, Joe's Diner in Irving, um, where we both, yeah, <laughs> where we both live, uh, just an old school diner. I mean, just, you know, such a great place. Um, and so we go to Joe's, we're having coffee, and he's asking me, what, what are you passionate about? And I thought about it, reflected on it. And I had been thinking about it up to that point. I was so frustrated with giving my kids the best experience I could in fifth grade, really trying to set them up for success. And then finding out in three years, four years, how many had dropped out, how many were no longer, you know, who had never exited the program and just knowing what happened to my, my babies, you know, and then seeing them as, you know, junior high kids. And, you know, this kid who, I thought like, wow, he's, he can really make it or she can really like, she's got some talent. And then four years later, she's got a baby and he's got an ankle monitor. And I'm like, what happened? What happened? Right. And I know it's not the kid. Cause I've been with the kid. I know it's the system. And so I was like, I want to revolutionize public education. And he was like, how about we write a book first? <laughs> <laughs> Through, uh, yes, we could, yes, we could yeah. do that by a book. I was like, I want to, I want to work on the dropout rate and specifically the disparity between people of color and kids who look like me and why there is such a disparity, right? And I want to talk about the school to prison pipeline. And I just we tell kids, if you do it, you know, if you, if you try hard, you can, but there are some real systemic issues at play. And this is a conversation we're having in the early 2000s. So, um, or mid 2000s. And so we decided that one thing we could do is focus on the content area classes, not the ESL or ESOL or targeted English learner spaces, but the general ed classrooms, how can we make those places where we have more language opportunities for everybody? Because a lot of reasons why kids drop out is because they're bored and they just, they get to the point where they're like, I can't do one more day of like death by PowerPoint while this old person talks at me. And then I go to another old person because we're all old to them. Like we might be 22, we might as well be 92, like we're old. 
So they don't see the difference. And so they're just, they just, you know, I just, I think a lot of it comes from the apathy that comes from and the boredom. Right. And, and I can't change everything, but I can at least like maybe make it a little easier for teachers to incorporate some more activities. And I also see it from the teacher perspective that it's impossible to plan engaging lessons for 185 days or however many days you have school, right? For seven different class periods. Like it, what we expect of teachers is ridiculous. So I wanted also to provide for them some strategies and some easy ways of structuring basic activities that I know they're gonna do. Like in social studies, we do a lot of the raft writing where it's the role audience format and topic and you change those around based on the situation or the, the unit or the content. And how can we adapt that so that there's more language and so we're supporting all levels of language development. So that's really how it came to be. So I wanted to burn it all down uh, in terms of public education. And then John was like, how about we just start with a book of strategies? And I was like, okay, we'll do that. <laughs> so that's how it came to be. Change happens in small ways, one seed at a time, one brick at a time. And I love how you talked about um, you, you weren't just focused, your books aren't just focused on uh, the language targeted classrooms, so specifically like ESL classrooms or ESOL classrooms, but because those kids are not in those classes for the majority of the day. So they're going to have all these experiences in, in their very sheltered classes. But then when they go to science, math, PE, drama, well, how are we going to support them? And so we really, we say it, your book is equity in action. Here is why, because it says that all of us are responsible for all students. So it's not just the language specialist that cares about Jaime. It's me as a social studies teacher. It's me as a science teacher. It's me as an English uh, art teacher caring about Jaime and Maria and Lopez, right? Yeah, perfect, absolutely. So uh, yeah, I think that's that's a huge part of it. And I also don't wanna come down on, you know, and sound like I am not respecting the the challenges or the efforts that teachers have put in, like it's it's so much harder to get kids to engage now that they are so stimulated. You know, when I see the video games that my 12 year old likes to play and the shows that he watches, like everything is multi-sensory, very, it's like a Michael Bay movie all day, every day it, that they're getting. And then they come to class and we're like, let's talk about these dead people. And they're like, no, I'm good. No, um, uh, so we have so many challenges, um, but we also have a lot of opportunities because kids are wanting to make sense of the world around them and wanting to ask questions and have conversations. They just may not know it yet, you know, that they, but once you have that kind of dynamic classroom, it also changes the life of the teacher because I don't want teachers to feel burned out and exhausted. And like, why do I come here every day? Like, why do I do this when my kids just sit and stare at me and, you know, look like, yeah, their, their lights are on, but they're not home, you know, and, um, and that's a lot of why teachers burn out too, because they're doing so much of the work. And so with the strategies in the book and in this book and the science book and anything that we do, we're really trying to make sure that kids are the ones engaging in the process because we know that only the brain that thinks learns, right? We don't learn by listening to somebody else answer a question. That's just not how the brain records and saves information. So this approach that we're, we're trying to do where, you know, we're listening, speaking, reading, and writing more in all the content areas is also designed to improve the experience of the educator and let them 
be more of that facilitator that we've been, you know, talking about for a while now in education so that kids are, you know, taking ownership and, and doing that work on their own. And when they do, we end up with 20 different perspectives on this issue, as opposed to 20 kids reiterating the teacher's perspective. You know what I mean? And that's so much richer and so much better for us just as a people to, to have that, you know, so. Because we sometimes, the way you're talking about it is that we no longer feel like we're cogs in a system, but we actually are, are practitioners of a craft, of a highly skilled craft, and we love right. it. Right? Exactly, and we want I want that respect for teachers in their craft. Um, you can't teach by a program, you know, not every teacher is different and it needs to play to their own strengths. Uh, it was so frustrating for me I, when I was in my first district that I worked with, which I loved. I had a great experience working there and I'm, I'm so proud to um, have done what I did there and, and met the people that I met and serve the kids that I served. But at the time that I started, I had no idea about education. I had never met a teacher. I thought it was going to be easy. I was up while I figured out what I wanted to be and where I was going to go to law school. And I thought it would look good on my applications, but I fell in love with teaching and fell in love with advocating for English learners from the jump. And I was desperate for resources. And so my mentor teacher gave me a book that they were giving um, to almost every new teacher that was called teach to your strengths. Mm. So it was about like how to differentiate your craft based on your own strengths and, you know, the importance of being a professional and at the same time, our district was rolling out like a mandated curriculum. And I'm like, you can't give me both of these things. Yeah, you can't ask me, just like you can't ask me to implement two different literacy frameworks at the same time, but you are. One person is saying, do it this way. And the other person saying it must also be this way. Like these messages are not, they're, they're incongruent and I can't resolve this. Like I can't teach to my strengths and teach your, you know, scripted program at the same time. Uh, and I just feel so compelled to like when we find those you know those things that are in conflict in education to call them out and try to eliminate that for teachers because they're the ones standing in the middle saying like which one what do I do you know teach to my strengths or teach your program which one um so I think there's a lot of that duplicity um and the multiple you know multiple messages that that really make it complicated for teachers so I just have such respect for anybody who well, anyone who listens to an education podcast, first of all, is awesome, just for the record, right? You've got to be awesome to be listening to an education podcast. And then to be in education, especially working with students, is the most important work I think that we do. Um, it's also the most challenging work. It is the most rewarding, but it's the most challenging. And so um, I am always trying to advocate when I'm with district leaders or people who are not in education when I'm on an airplane or um, at the bar at the airport, let's be real. That's where I like to have most of my good conversations, uh, that I remind people, you know, how much respect teachers deserve. Like, yes, they should get paid more, but they need to get paid more in respect as well. They're already getting paid a ton in karma, but that doesn't really, you know, that doesn't pay your car payment. And also it affects the kind of, uh, the, the attraction of people to the profession. And we want to attract the, the caliber of teacher that our kids deserve. Um, and so I am just so adamant about giving teachers more than lip service in terms of they deserve respect. Like we should be providing so much more in terms of resources and financial and otherwise so much more training because I find teachers are really always eager for new strategies, new ideas, 
uh, new approaches and, and ways to connect with kids. And I'm just so grateful for anybody who works in this realm with us. I am also grateful for the teachers that actively choose to put on headphones and choose to click play on an education podcast where they can be listening to so many other things. So do you listen to education podcasts? Oh, I do. I listen to something called uh, Classroom Caffeinated. I listen to uh, Carol Salvas. I Mm -hmm. listen to uh, Elevation. I listen to something called um, uh, Brainwaves and Cult of Pedagogy one. Mm-hmm. So uh, those are, those. I listen to a lot of education podcasts as well. I also go also on YouTube on Saturdays and Sundays. I'll do things around the house. I'll go put on Corwin and Corwin has all of their webinars for free. So I can be watching uh, something about John Hattie or Douglas Fisher and I'll just be popping it around. I'll be doing chores around my house and learning that way. So it's a special breed of teachers that do this. I agree. And I want to get more into education podcasts. The problem for me is I have a hard time retaining the information when it comes in podcast form. I'm I'm a visual learner. uh, And so I listen, I'm constantly listening to podcasts like all the time, constantly, but they're usually not education related because when it's education, I feel like, oh, I need to stop and write this down. And I, you know, so, but I'm always listening to ones that are interesting about like, you know, how the brain works. I love all kinds of like total like nerd section in terms of podcasts. Yeah, absolutely. But not education necessarily. And I want to listen to more, but that's my struggle is I have a hard time with the education ones retaining the information. Um, so I need to get better at that. Any tips for that? Do you remember what you hear and does the YouTube work better? Uh, well, what happens is there's a strategy that I've learned by listening to podcasts. If there's something you want to remember, you pause, the, you pause and you reflect and say, what did I just learn? And then continue to the next part because that helps you remember. And at the end of the podcast, I say, what, is, what are the three things that I'm taking away? Right. And so when I'm listening to a podcast, I will visualize what's happening. So I remember it more if I really think it's important. Thank you for that. I don't know if you usually offer tips for your participants, but um, yeah, I need that. So what did I just learn? That's good. I've paused before and like written something down, but that just, that's not sustainable long-term. And if you're in the middle of doing the dishes or whatever, you don't want to do that. Um, But I can pause for that moment of reflection and just say, what did I just learn? And then at the end, also do another pause for reflection for myself. Yes. Perfect. I'm loving how, where this podcast is going. I loved also how you talked about a single message for teachers. Cause you said there was like teach with differentiation, but no, here, here's a here's a scripted curriculum. And I think that you have a single message in your book and your single message in your book is that we must have kids do more of the work than us. And you gave us strategies to do that. And I know that teachers will be pausing this video to hear all of your strategies. You have basically, when I look at the table of contents, it's a list of strategies set in to different um, chapters. So the first section is really setting the stage. Would you help us set the stage for uh, your book? So go ahead. Yeah, so, um, well, no, say more about that, the set the stage for the book part, because I don't know that I'm gonna be successful. I need a little Uh, more. Yeah, so chapter two is about, um, so warm-ups, uncovering Mm -hmm. the picture, language anticipation guide, predicting prediction cafe like you have all these things where we're learning about warm-ups and then another section is about building background knowledge so 
that's those things are setting the stage. Those are strategies that you have. Yeah, absolutely. And so the whole resource is designed around those strategies. Like you said, if you look at the table of contents, it is just a list of strategies pretty much because what we've done is think about the typical social studies lesson cycle. Um, and the vision was for secondary classrooms, but it works the same for elementary as well. But the vision was thinking about those kids who start to see themselves differently in the middle school and then early high school years. Those classrooms were my, my focus. That's who I was writing for. And in those lessons, normally first thing we do some type of warm up or a bell ringer, something that gets kids just mentally present to do the content piece. Because when they first walk into the classroom, if it's a secondary setting, they walk in thinking about 99 other things besides the content. Like it is not on their radar at first when they walk in. So the warm up has a couple of objectives. One is to get the kids uh, ready to learn and focused a little bit. Uh, and the other is for them to experience a, a small amount of success. Very first thing it has to be something that all kids can do and that all kids can do independently. It can't depend on that background knowledge that we'll talk about next. It has to be something they can all do independently and they can all do successfully. So that warm up is just a few minutes. And then the building background uh, is where we do kind of activate any prior knowledge and see where any gaps are and get into more activities that generate. What I love about our building background section is it's focused on finding out what your kids already know and celebrating that. And so before we're talking about new content, we're talking about what do you already know? Like, let's, let's, let's acknowledge what you're bringing to the table. And the reason that's so helpful, both in the warm-up and in the building background, there's a lot of talking between the kids. Yeah, lots of talking. Now, not all the time, because sometimes on some days, like depending on, you know, the barometric pressure or the lunar cycle or whatever, sometimes you want quiet. So we definitely have quiet activities as well. When you just can't even with their precious voices, there are definitely warm-ups and building background for that. But during building background, you can usually have this experience of this peer-to-peer communication that is so much more powerful than adult-to-student communication. Because when I talk I, to my kids or to a group of teachers, I'm standing at the front of the room, they are seated, you're, you're in a position where you're like above, literally, your eye level is not the same. And especially with kids, that just contributes to the power dynamic that they experience. And you're an authority figure and your, your message comes through the brain differently and is not received the same as a peer. So that's why the kid next to them can say something that you have said three times and they, you know, they haven't gotten it and you've said it three times and then the kid next to him says it and they're like, oh yeah, I totally get it. And then you're like, I just like, what I just said that, how did, you know, and it's because it's peer to peer communication. And so we want to take advantage of that in the building background part and have students really share what they know with each other before they get into the new content piece. And so that's really important because you never, we often, we think we know where the gaps are in their understanding. And then we'll be shocked because like, for example, I was working recently with teachers and I was doing something around the 1980s. And there was a group of teachers who seemed way too young to be so good at it, at what they were doing. And it was because I was like, how do y'all know all this? And it was because they had watched Stranger Things on Netflix Right. And it was like set in the eighties. And so I have not watched that show. I can't do scary TV. I can't, I don't understand how people can do it. I can't handle it. It, it takes years off my life. I don't enjoy it. It's not pleasant. It hurts me physically, 
So they had watched Stranger Things and they had all these 80s references that I was prepared to teach them. But if I hadn't had that conversation and done that activity, we did a list group and label. If we hadn't done that activity, I would have assumed that their background knowledge was different than it was. I just didn't know the show had just come out. I didn't know that that was going to impact my practice. And I've noticed as I continue to do stuff around the 80s that people do have more knowledge because like the 80s is cool right now. You know, So we're seeing it on TV and stuff. Uh, so that's why I think those two steps are so important. Like a warm up that helps kids feel, okay, I can do this. Like no matter what else is going on, at least in this classroom, this teacher like is meeting me a little bit where I'm at. I'm gonna experience a little bit of success. And we're really just trying to keep them hanging on like one from one component to the next, like do the warm up, okay, do the building background. Okay, now we're doing, now we're into the lecture part. We're getting new content info. That's the hardest part of it, right? Is getting them to, to be engaged with that new material. So before we do that, we're gonna have them experience success and show what they know and get the opportunity to collaborate with you know a couple of peers and then we'll do the hard part of giving them the new information. Right. I think that's so key because all learning is social. That's what Bukowski said. And you're tapping into student social nature, right? I have learned that the one of my biggest uh, epiphanies is about education is that kids don't come to school for us. They come to school for each other. And they just happen to be forced to learn be, to hang out with their friends. If not, they just come to school to hang out with their friends. So we have to turn our uh, instruction to be a social learning experiences and your first two suggestions, which are warm-ups and building background knowledge, really go back to saying, kids, what do you know? Let's talk about it. Um, can you talk more about one of the three strategies here in the warm-ups? I love that, the uncover the picture, language anticipation guide, or the prediction cafe. Oh yeah. So uh, let's see, which one should we talk about? Oh, there are so many options. I think I will spend just a second um, talking about the prediction cafe, because it's the only strategy in the whole book where you have to make copies of something first and cut it apart. It is the most uh, highly like needy, I guess, or demanding activity because you do have to cut strips of paper apart first. That is the only strategy that involves that level of prep. And that's intentional as well, because th these strategies are for all kinds of different teachers, ones who are brand new and just need some, any ideas, I'll take whatever you got, just bring it to me. Uh, teachers who have tried, you know, the usual, the raft and the, you know, they've done it, a couple of DBQs and a couple of other social studies type things, but they just want a few more ideas. Like maybe they haven't seen Prediction Cafe. And then for mostly though, it's for the teacher who's totally burned out and is just teaching the same way they've been teaching for like 15 years and just feels like, listen, the kids don't care. So I don't care either that kind of attitude, um, trying to get that teacher to just take a chance, like go ahead and, and make the copies and cut this article apart and see what happens. And what I love about Prediction Cafe is because it's a warm up, there is no right or wrong answer. You are basically what happens is we take a news article and we cut it apart into individual sentences or a couple of sentences. The different pictures are cut out, the captions are cut out. And then every student gets a piece of paper. And if I have newcomers or beginner English or beginner language learners, they will get the picture, right? So that they can use that and not have necessarily the literacy piece if they're a brand new newcomer or a beginner in their language acquisition in this particular language, then we give them the picture. Otherwise you can have anything, the title, whatever. And you walk around and meet with like two or three at most different partners and just have a conversation where you say, mine says this, 
the other person says, okay, well, mine says this. And then based on our cards, I predict, based on our cards, I predict, and that's it. And then by the time they sit back down, they've got a little bit of knowledge about the, the article, but they don't read the article. And this is the other part too. When they sit down, teachers are like, okay, well then do they read the article? Do they annotate it? No, we don't have to annotate everything. Like you don't just put it, put your highlighter down and walk away. Just don't even tell them what the article is about. Just move on because that makes their brain go, wait, 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 I didn't finish that. But what was I right? Because the brain loves to predict. It actually is the same as gambling. It's what your brain is doing. It's like the same as if you were putting, like you're playing, I don't, I'm not good at gambling. I don't, I don't enjoy it. It's not my thing. Uh, I, it just seems, I don't know. I don't, it's not my thing, except I like roulette. Roulette's okay. So imagine that you like put, you know, a dollar on black and then walk away and never know if you got it or not. Your brain can't stand that. And we can do the same thing, not turn our kids hopefully into gamblers, but do the same thing with the prediction cafe. And they wonder, well, what was that about? And then of course the article is somewhat related to our content for that day, but that article is not the content for the day. They don't even get to read it. You don't get to, you can't have this article. It's special and you don't get to know. And then they will actually kind of want to read it, you know? So uh, yeah, that's why I love prediction cafe. So it is worth going to the effort of cutting the pieces of paper apart and distributing them throughout your class. Like, and that's the only one I think that requires even copies. Right. And it's, it's really easy. We're just cutting out an article. We're not writing the article and it's, and this can be differentiated for beginners. We might say, here are three images uh, connected to the picture. I want you to talk to your partner about what do you predict? This is my picture. That's your picture. Let's make a prediction of what these pictures together mean. Right. And so we've got sentence stems we're using. We're using those structured interactions and everybody just talks to two or three people and then they sit down and we make a few predictions. And then I, you know, usually would end up in the lecture telling them things that came from the article, but it's not necessarily, it's not directly tied to the content even. It's just to get them a little bit excited, a little bit engaged and up and moving and talking right away. And then they sit down and we do you know, the content piece, but first they get to talk and move around a little bit. So that's why right. I love Prediction Cafe. I think it's worth doing. It starts to stimulate, it starts to engage them right away. Then let's move to the uh, content delivery part. You have a section called interactive lecture and then academic reading. Let's talk about interactive lecture here. Yeah. So especially with social studies, there will be a direct teach piece. It is generally information that students have not heard before often. And so it's essential that we do direct instruction. It's essential that we, and, and so many of our assessments, so much of their AP testing or their EOCs that we have our end of course exams, so much of their testing that's standardized is uh, going to measure their knowledge that we need, you know, knowledge about topics that we have to lecture on basically. So one of the first things I tell teachers when we train on this resource is I am not here to take away your lecture. So don't, don't worry about that. You don't have to, you know, protect it from me. You must give direct instruction. I get that. But if it's not interactive, it's not effective. If it is just you, like I can do like bloviating for an hour, no one's going to remember anything. They've got to exactly like you're saying with a podcast, pause and say, okay, what did I just hear? It's the exact same thing. It's like you're delivering a live podcast when you're lecturing. If you don't pause for that reflection, then there is not retention. And so this, and I just think that these long lectures, that's when kids are close to dropping out. That's when they're like, you know what? I can't listen to, I just can't, I can't do this anymore. Uh, but when we do a lecture that's interactive, there are very simple things that we do to make it interactive. Like literally one of the strategies is point and talk. That's a strategy. 
Think about what you're going to point at before you start teaching. Have it ready. Point at it while you're teaching. It's not even like, I'm not trying to make things complicated. I'm trying to make them effective. And so point and talk and turn and talk and do a quick draw where they do a non-linguistic representation of what they're talking about and share about it with a partner. Those are all the strategies in the interactive lecture because you are doing a lecture. You're not going to pause to do a structured reading or writing activity because this is the lecture piece. This is the direct teach piece. So how can I still make that interactive? And the turn until five gets you that uh, same experience. It's turn to the person next to you and for five seconds, tell them what we're talking about. So that way, if they're distracted or maybe there is a language difference or a learning difference and they didn't catch it, when you turn to them and, you know, you say, oh, we're talking about blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, great. And it's that peer-to-peer communication, again, that's so much more comprehensible than adult to student, right. but it's only five seconds. So even if they say something totally wrong, <laughs> they can't mess up too much in five seconds. And then, of course, if you want to, you can, you know, randomize and call in a couple of students and say, what did your partner tell you that we're talking about? Because that's also helping them retain not just what they said. It's easy for us to remember what we said, but helping them retain what their partner said. Right. Uh, so those are all really straightforward and easy, like really right. just point and talk. Right. I think the biggest thing is when we're thinking about lectures, I think about as a, as an, instead of a pizza, it's pizza slices. Like your lecture, it contains all these eight slices. And instead of saying, kids, here's a pizza, shove it in your mouth and try to like dissect it, right? I'm sorry, try to digest it. But we're saying, here's a chunk of information. After giving we one slice, I want you to pause. I want you to talk. I'm going to give you a structured, very quick structured activity to do, to make it, to allow you to process the information, to pause, take a deep breath, speak in your home language, to say what you've learned, what you're disagreed with, what are your opinions about what was shared, and then that we can move on to the next part, right? Absolutely, yeah, perfect. Let's move now talking, talking about the academic reading part. Oh, yes. So this part is so much fun and it's so stressful too, uh, especially working with content area teachers at the secondary level. Um, most of the time they did not choose to be reading teachers. They, they may not even like reading themselves. They may not have had strong, you know, good reading experiences. I think about when I work with, I work with a lot of career and uh, tech teachers who, you know, teach things like automotive or graphic design or uh, cosmetology, and, and you know, we don't think to necessarily read in those classes. And so one of the things that we do in every resource that we have, whether it's the social studies, science, or someday soon to be math, when we're done with that one, they are all focused on having our, our, our kids have more opportunities to read that are authentic and connected to that content. So not just reading for reading's sake, but reading in your content area. So you become so our students become literate in that content area. And the way that we read in social studies and what we read in social studies is different than what we read and how we read in language arts. And it's different than it is in science. And so for each of the content areas, we want to invite teachers to design that academic reading in a way that fits with your content. And it's not about overall literacy. It's about having them become more literate in that specific discipline. So I understand the challenges of teaching are using a reading in the secondary classroom and social studies. And I get why so many teachers kind of have a don't ask, don't tell policy, which is like, I don't ask you to read. You don't tell me that you can't and everybody's fine. We're just going to watch a video. Uh, but that when we do that, we're just 
we're just, as they say, the idiom goes, we're just kicking the can down the road. We're just, you know, this student, if my, if I'm teaching fifth grade and in fourth grade, the student didn't grow in their overall literacy or in their content literacy, and I don't help them in fifth and nothing happens in sixth and seventh. Okay. Now all of a sudden this kid's an eighth grader whose content area literacy is still on the fourth grade level. And now it's a real problem. And if I'm an eighth grade teacher, I don't necessarily have second, third and fourth grade resources um, at my disposal. So can I do a shout out for uh, a free web? Okay. And I'm sure that some of, some of your uh, listeners, watchers, readers, how do you, do you have a name for your podcast fans? Oh, you need one. You need something for that. Um, listeners. Yeah. Yeah, your listeners, right? But they need, I don't know, we need something for this. We need some type of name. I'll work on it. There should be a t-shirt or something. I'll figure it out. Uh, but I now I totally forgot what I was going to say. What was I going to talk about? Reading. Like- yes. Okay. So um, the website is commonlit.org. Have you shouted that out before? Okay. So commonlit.org added a whole bunch of stuff this summer and they even have a curriculum now. And lots of translation options, lots of different texts. And so that's what I use most in the secondary classrooms for reading activities in social studies because kids can be all reading around the same theme or the same unit or topic, but one student can have a poem on a fifth grade level and one student can have an essay on a 12th grade level. And it's not about, they're different genres and they're different texts. So it's not saying, oh, we have the same one, but mine's shorter or his is, you know, how come, how come I don't have to, how come I have to read more, you know, cause the kids have those three favorite words, you know, that's not fair. Yeah. So we, when we have those different types of genres in that same reading activity, it makes it easier to differentiate without it being obvious. Because sometimes when we just simplify, it's like, oh, I see that you just have two paragraphs and this person has four, but now we're just doing totally different reading. So that's my favorite um, resource there for actually finding text you can use. But I think the most important thing about academic reading and social studies is just to do it, just to actually do it is the most important thing. And to understand that, yeah, kids are on all different levels, but it's essential that they grow in their, their content area literacy and there's just no way around it. So we've got to have some strategies to make it more comprehensible. So we do have a couple in the book that focus on like annotation or, uh, you know, how do we use native language text effectively, but mostly just giving kids that opportunity to read and to help them, you know, experience success in reading because sometimes they haven't had that for years. Right. And I, I, I look at myself and I think about, oh my goodness, my diet of content that students are learning, very little is lecture. Most of it, videos, I'll have like two articles a unit, right? And that sounds like not a lot, but the writing, reading that they're doing is intense. Um, so let's move then to academic writing and academic conversations. We only have a few more minutes before you have to go on your flight. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the reading, uh, I mean, the, the writing and the conversation. So I think in the book, I may have put writing before conversation, even. You did. Yeah, you did. Way. Yeah. Uh, and that's not any, for any particular reason. The reading, the writing, and the conversation all kind of go together. Right. But I just want to highlight a couple of quick things from writing and conversation. One would be on the writing strategies. Uh, we do this one called Fortune and Misfortune, which is my very favorite thing to do in social studies basically around the unit or the topic or whatever your content is, students work in teams to generate positive and negative scenarios connected to that topic. So my favorite one to do this with is the Oregon Trail because the Oregon Trail in the United States was such a big deal. You know, it was like 
the big mass migration of people out to the West and kids love it because lots of stuff happens, like lots of dysentery, lots of death and they're morbid little creatures. They love this. And it's just a you know really interesting time period. And so they can write something positive that would have happened would be, uh, we might, you know, come upon a herd of deer and we might actually get some meat and something negative that would happen would be like, you know, uncle Jimmy gets snake bit as we would say where I'm from, he gets snake bit. Uh, it's a verb. Anyway, so uncle Jimmy gets snake bit and dies, whatever. Uh, so we collect all those scenarios. They write them on like little post-it notes. You connect them all and collect them all. And then everybody has a blank piece of paper and they start writing as if they're writing a, a, a diary entry from that experience. They're on right. the Oregon trail right. and they write their diary entry based on the fortunes and misfortunes that you pull out of the pile. So you're like, Oh, you got to write about uncle Jimmy got snake bit. Okay. Now we do a few sentences on that. Okay. Now it's this one. And uh, I love that strategy because one, if the kids answers aren't very good, I can lie and like make up what I want because they can't, they don't see it because you've collected them. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. So you can kind of uh, save them from themselves if you need to, but <laughs> everybody ends up writing way more than they would have on their own. And it goes really fast, but everybody's writing is different. And it's so fun for me to see 20 different takes on the same five events and the way that their voice comes through. Um, and in that activity, all languages are welcome. Whatever comes out, comes out because you're doing a quick write. You shouldn't censor yourself. I mean, I mean, not like Eminem level of censoring. I mean, no profanity, but in terms of a mix of languages, absolutely, that's great. That's it shows me how your brain was working, you know, while you were writing this. Uh, so I love that it takes the pressure off to do perfect writing. You're not writing an essay for English class. You are on the Oregon Trail and you're sharing your experience. And whatever that looks like is what it looks like. Right. I love yeah. that. You're making it. You're making reading, writing, uh, learning so easy and low risk. Exactly. And then right. one of the conversation strategies that I want to highlight is. Uh, T-chart, pair, and defend. So you take a, a controversial statement and you make a T-chart about why it's true and why it's false. So, you know, just like a pros and cons, we call it a T-chart, but it could, you know, pros and cons list, basically positives and negatives, affirmative and negation. And we go through and make like three reasons why this statement's true, three reasons why it's false. And then the kids are paired up and they're assigned one side of the argument. And they can read the chart verbatim or they can put it in their own words, but the chart has academic language and it uses complete sentences so that our newcomers, beginners and students at intermediate levels of proficiency can be just as successful. And everybody's welcome to just read straight from the chart. I let them go through it twice. So I have them with one partner they start with, and then I rotate half the kids around and you get a new partner, but you stay in your position. So if you were positive, you stay in place. And then the people who are assigned negative are the only ones who rotate. And so ah. then kids go and find a new positive and they stay in the same positions physically. So positive stays on the left, negative stays on the right or whatever. And then I tell them to do the same thing again, negative, go find a new partner, positive, stay where you're at. And the third, this is the third time now that they're going to talk before they can start talking. I make them switch places physically and on the chart. And it blows their mind because wait, I just argued the other side twice. Okay. How am I now going to advocate for this? And that's where we learn to appreciate multiple perspectives and understanding right. that you can articulate it without believing it. And understanding it doesn't mean accepting it. It just means understanding. And that's what discussion is all about. And then, and only then, after they've argued for both sides, do they get to sit down and have their opinion. But you don't get to have your opinion until you're informed. 
I wish I could do this for all of social media for everybody. <laughs> uh, and you know how I feel about social media. And that's why I don't really do it because everybody's got opinions. And I don't know that anybody is informed, but at least in our classrooms, we can, you know, solve for that. So that's why I love that activity is you do sit down and have an opinion, but only after you have articulated both sides of the argument. And it's, a, it's another way of structuring conversation, which then helps them in their writing, which is a scaffold, a doorway to writing. Let's end the podcast with assessment. We have like a few more minutes. So let's few seconds. What would yes, you talk about assessment? Because um, assessment is so different based on your, your scenario. So it's hard to do a chapter in the book that is general enough because right. everybody's forms of assessment are different. Right. Right. So what we focused on were just three things. Uh, we talked about just accommodating testing in general. What can that look like? How, how can you make it possible for an intermediate English learner or any language learner to explain what they know in this format when it's mostly gonna be reading and writing and it's all language-based how can we accommodate what, what's available to us? And again, that's different based on different countries, different states, different programs. So there are only a few things you can say in general that are helpful there, like having a student have their own native language resource they use from the beginning of the year and being comfortable with that, you know, those basic tips. We also talked about adapting um, any type of assessment that has students compare two different documents how can we make that accessible? What are some other performance tasks we can do that are more accessible? Um, and just in general, how can you better support all kids when it comes to assessment and recognizing that that standardized assessment is not an accurate reflection of the student's overall understanding. And then we just offer five things you can do instead of the section review at the end of the chapter, because I was really bad in the classroom about just saying, oh, well, there's like five questions at the end, uh, pick two. And that was my idea of like making it exciting, you know, and it's still not very exciting. So uh, different ways that we can get students to show what they know, but also understand that their expressive vocabulary is not going to be a reflection of their overall cognitive ability or their understanding. And knowing that this assessment is not the be all and end all, even though from your administrator's perspective and your data talks, you know, it feels that way. The reality is there is so much more happening in their brains than they can show on that test. And that's why we have got to have so, so many opportunities during the lesson cycle for them to listen, speak, read and write and show what they know outside of that assessment window. So they know that I did really well on my T-chart paired to send yesterday and uh, my academic reading assignment, I did well on that, you know, so maybe I didn't do as well on this standardized test, but I have experienced success in other ways. And that all brings us back to bringing down that dropout rate and or burning down public education in general. <laughs> That's my plan. <laughs> and with that. No, okay. Um, <laughs> let's end with uh, traffic light teaching, which is red light is something you ask teachers to stop doing. A yellow light is something you ask teachers to start doing. Like when you get to a yellow light, you start slowing down. And a green light, what is something they should be doing already? They should, they're already doing, and you encourage them to keep on doing that thing. Oh, that's great. Okay, for red, stop doing round robin reading. Stop it yesterday, stop it now. Uh, so round, why is it even called round robin reading? But round robin reading is where you have one kid read out loud while everybody else prays for the sweet release of death. And then you switch to another person and then another person and everybody mispronounces everything and everybody is stressed. I remember, and I am 
I'm an excellent reader, but I remember reading out loud. I would have an out of body experience. I would pull on disassociate because I was so nervous, right? When you're in that state of disassociation, when you're having out of body experience, you literally cannot learn. Your brain shuts down. Your amygdala makes it, it's all fired up. You can't learn. Round robin reading has the unique ability to it's bad for everybody. It has the ability to terrify kids and bore kids. And when you're bored, you cannot learn. And when you're scared, you can't learn. So choral reading is fine. Having everybody read out loud or you read out loud and then you pause and have everybody say the next word. Choral reading is great. Round robin reading is not okay. It's fine if you did it up until now. If you didn't know any better, that's fine. But stop it. Stop it now. If you do, please. It's terrible for the kids and you hate it too. So don't do it anymore, but choral reading is fine. Um, please start giving yourself credit for what you're already doing. I don't think that teachers are, have been able to do that over this last year. This was all chaos. I don't even know what happened. Uh, we're all in shock from what we've all been through as a collective traumatic experience. Start acknowledging that the fact that you're still here and listening to educational podcasts and getting ready for school year, like start giving yourself credit because they're going to be all those things that come at you during the year when the two programs aren't in alignment or this kid, no matter what you do, you're, Oh, it's not connecting, but that's going to happen. So start now with recognizing what you're doing and giving yourself credit. And then when it comes to keep doing, um, please keep doing this job. <laughs> please keep being a teacher. One, we desperately need you and your expertise. Uh, we, whatever, you know, you are experiencing in terms of challenging circumstances or new teaching assignments, all, you know, this is a time of the year that a lot of people are in flux and asking questions. Is this the right place for me? Should I have, you know, I'm starting a new role. Am I going to be okay at that? Um, just keep doing what you're doing to advocate for your language learners and all of your kids from culturally diverse backgrounds. Uh, and just continue to support them in whatever role you're going to be in. So just keeping an advocate, no matter what your new teaching role looks like. Tina, you said at the beginning that you wanted to have an education revolution. Well, I see you already at the front of the march, keeping the banner, waving that flag, cheering us on, and we are all following you. I can see right now, all the teachers that are around the world listening, they've already paused so many times to write little things on their phones, things on their notepad, and they're re-listening to this. So you have already started the revolution. Keep on sharing, Tina. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me here today. I loved it. I don't know why we waited so long. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. I think Tina's central message is that all students can learn content if we make it engaging and engagement often involves students speaking and interacting with each other. If we can make it engaging, students will learn. 
This doesn't mean dressing like George Washington when teaching about him. It means creating activities and learning experience where students are interacting with each other. This strategy field book is like one strategy after another. Yet all of these strategies are low prep for teachers while being high interactions for students. Tina talked about wanting to prevent students from dropping out of school. I think we can use these strategies in class so that students are more likely to engage and therefore remain engaged in school. When it's fun for them, they want to participate. Let's join Tina in marching for this educational revolution. In the next podcast, we're joined with the one and only Emily Francis. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.